Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 28th, 2014, and my guest is Charles Marone, president of Strong Towns, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that works to help America's towns achieve financial strength and resiliency. Chuck, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks so much, Russ. It's great to be here. What's a strong town? <laughs> That's a really good question. I think at the end of the day, a strong town is one that can pay its bills uh, and is not reliant on others for its own future. You know, so many cities around the country today uh, are completely dependent on aid from other places, from revenues from outside the city in order just to make ends meet. And a strong town is one that is completely in control of its its own future. How do we get there from here? How do we get how do we get or here from there? How do, how do we get to a situation where so many towns are um, either literally bankrupt or near bankruptcy? Yeah, that, that's a really complicated question and answer. But in kind of a Cliff Notes version, after World War II, we began and really before World War II to a degree, but exploding after World War II. We began this kind of new experiment in how to build cities. We kind of turned our backs on the way humans had built civilizations for thousands and thousands of years. We did this for logical reasons. You know, we had the automobile now and kind of felt that this would be the thing that would bring us a great bit of prosperity. And we started building cities in different ways. And in the very short term, it created a lot of growth and a lot of prosperity but over the long term, it is uh, that horizontal expansion component has created an enormous number of liabilities. Just essentially spreading everything out uh, basically means there's more for everybody to pay for. There's more for everybody to maintain. As we've gone on, that illusion of wealth you get from all the new growth is a real enticement. And so our solution to financial distress has been to generate more and more growth. And at the end of the day, that's only made our problems worse. So today our cities face these huge financial imbalances in terms of infrastructure they need to maintain, the amount of area they have to police and serve with fire protection and, and other services. And they just simply don't have anywhere near the tax base to do it. There's not enough there, there in a sense. So what's wrong with growth, though? That would seem to be a good thing. It would seem growth generally means you've got an enlarged capacity to pay for stuff. Why has that not worked out? Well, growth is fantastic, and our cities need growth, and cities have always been successful when they've had it. I think the the trick is that it's got to be productive growth. It's got to be growth that ultimately makes you wealthier over the long term. You know, you, you look at a business or a family or a city – Growth is relatively easy. I mean, we can generate growth tomorrow, uh, no problem, if we're willing to take on a bunch of debt and a bunch of long-term liabilities. Really, for cities, the exchange has been near-term growth for long-term liabilities. And the math on that just doesn't balance. We've had modest amounts of growth compared to the enormous liabilities that we've taken on. And that's why cities are drowning in long-term obligations. 
So it's more than just financial problems, though, of course. There's a, a whole set of, I think of them as sort of textural, the, the texture of city living that, that matters as well. And, of course, they're tied together. If you have a lousy uh, texture of living, if it's no, no fun to live in a city, you're not going to have population growing and you're going to have population fleeing and you're going to have problems with your tax base and you're going to have trouble paying for promises you've made in the past. But it seems to me that's really – Obviously, there are many ways to think of it. As you said, it's a complicated question, but the root of the problem to some extent is our cities have have not have become a little bit dysfunctional, not just in the borrowing problem, but in what they actually do and what their, the, the streets are like and what uh, the businesses are like and what urban life and transportation is like. And so I want to I focus on that. I, I want to think about two different ways we could think about what went wrong in the cities that are struggling. And one is that they just made mistakes. The other is that there are some special interests that have benefited and profited from these uh, decisions and policies. So there's a lot of urban fads over the last 50 years. Do you want to <laughs> yeah. pick on a few of them that you just think were mistakes? Let's not worry yet about the <laughs> special interest part, but what kind of movements and ideas in, in urban living and in urban planning do you think have been mistakes? Well, and I think that gets to the point that you just made where cities are really complex places. And I think, you know, we're, I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we pretended that cities didn't, weren't going to make mistakes or wouldn't always make mistakes. I think what is unique to the last 50, 60 years is kind of the hubris involved in our mistakes and, and the scale of them. Uh, you know, we, I just read an article today about this poor city of Chester, uh, in Pennsylvania, where, you know, in order to generate growth, they went out and built a soccer stadium. Uh, Ed Rendell, the big spokesman for infrastructure in this country, uh, was a huge supporter of this when he was governor. And of course, you know, the stadium got built. A lot of people who built it made money and, uh, nothing has happened all around it. I went and visited the location a couple of years ago after they had done a- another, you know, tens of millions of dollar project to build an interchange, same basic concept. Uh, we would do this and get growth and get all this economic development. Of course, nothing has happened. I, I think at the end of the day, what we have done is we have taken cities that grew in small iterative increments over time and in pursuit of growth, tried to simplify uh, their growth down to one or two different variables, whether it was running the highways through the middle of the city building interchanges, uh, building frontage roads and getting growth that way, whether it was we're going to do urban renewal, tear down neighborhoods and put back things we thought would be better, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, building a stadium or a convention center or some other kind of sexy, flashy thing that we think will create growth. It's really not the mistakes, but the scale at which we've made the mistakes and the scale at which we've operated that is the problem. We need to get to a situation where we make our mistakes early and small so that they become learning things and not, you know, these huge albatrosses that we see in cities all over the country. Yeah, you're very critical of what you call mega projects, which reminds me, incidentally, of foreign aid problems in in trying to alleviate poverty in poor parts of the world. We do have a romance about the giant savior project that's going to, quote, fix everything rather than being patient and understanding that that's not the way the world usually works successfully? Well, especially at sea level, I mean, there's a seductiveness uh, to be able to go in and, and have 
the, the big flashy thing that you believe created the success in the neighboring city. Historically, you know, I, I like to point out that Rome didn't get the Colosseum and then build Rome. I mean, the, <laughs> the Colosseum was the byproduct of yep. centuries of success. And, you know, you can look and say, well, Rome was successful because they had a Colosseum and go out and build a Colosseum and then say, you know, why isn't Rome appearing here? Uh, the process is much messier, much more complex, uh, and, you know, less kind of easy, quick and easy than that. And, you know, whether it's politically, whether it's socially, whether it's just financially, uh, we've been able to kind of short circuit that route to get to what we perceive to be the end destination, you know, the Colosseum, a lot more quickly in the last 50, 60 years. And it's really damaged the finances of our cities because we haven't done that hard iterative work to get to that point. Well, you lose the benefits of trial and error, right? Like you said, you make a big mistake and you pay for it for a very long time and it's too late. It's been made. You've sunk all those resources into that and it's done. Well, and then you have to, you have this weird situation. Like I was in Memphis last week and Memphis in the eighties really wanted a basketball team. They felt the basketball team would bring them success and make them kind of a world-class city. And they went out and built a stadium and they had their college team playing in there, but it was, you know, this pyramid shaped stadium, kind of iconic structure. When the Memphis Grizzlies were enticed to move to Memphis, they didn't actually want that stadium. They wanted a different stadium. And so they built a new stadium. They got Pro X, uh, Pro X stadium there for the Memphis Grizzlies. The college moved over and plays there now. And the pyramid's been standing empty for a long time. They're now left with the question, you know, what do we do with this? And they've wound up having to sink another $35 million of subsidy in in order to get Bass Pro Shop to move in there and open a retail establishment. They already have a Bass Pro, so they're basically shutting down the other one and just, you know, relocating some of that. I suppose you could argue it's a bigger destination now and maybe a bigger draw, but there's Bass Pros all over the place. Ah, um, but how many of them are in a know? pyramid? <laughs> Precisely, right? yeah, you know. And, and, and so It kind of ends the yeah, argument, doesn't yeah. it? Exactly. And you wind up having to essentially double down on dumb money spent because you're so far down the path. This is a city, Memphis, where, you know, they've got great neighborhoods, but they've just lacked disinvestment for generations. I mean, you've got sidewalks falling apart. You've got streets you can hardly drive down. You've got lots of crime. You know, it's it's a wonderful city in many ways, but a city that if you could have taken those tens of millions of dollars and invested them in actual neighborhoods, it would have paid a much greater return than these kind of huge mega projects that were supposed to change everything. Now, just for the record, I was born about a mile uh, from that uh, Bass Pro Shop pyramid location. Oh, really? Yeah. St. Joseph, oh, wow. Joseph Hospital. I think it's still there. I get back to Memphis about once a year. I still have family there. And um, as you say, it's a town that has a lot of – it has a lot of advantages. It has a lot of history. It's got a river. It's got um, some great, great iconic uh, history in music, uh, in food, but it doesn't exploit it very well. Um, so let me right. ask you a tough question. Uh, yeah. I'm going to put you in charge for a little bit. And, and by the way, Memphis is like – it reminds me a lot of Kansas City. It reminds me a lot of St. Louis. It reminds me – I'm sure of other cities I haven't been to, they would remind me of each other because it's a city where the downtown is uh, 
sometimes there's a few good little blocks that are nice that you're happy to go visit. There's others that are really depressing and sometimes a little bit scary. Uh, there's not a lot going on there. It's dark uh, at night. There's not street life and other things that bring people down there except in those few blocks that they've thrown a lot of money at to try to improve in, in those cities. And um, everybody's – not everybody. A lot of people ha- have fled to the suburbs and uh, the suburbs are growing. The cities are shrinking in terms of population. The overall metropolitan area might be doing pretty well in, in St. Louis, for example, uh, or in Memphis or in Kansas City. But it's not happening in the city core in the city limits, and that part of the city is uh, pretty awful. And so what would you do to you're in, I put you in charge of any of those cities? What are some of those small incremental steps that you would put in place instead of fixing that Bass Pro Shop uh, location up? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think it's important just as part of that question to just note and understand that while the edge is growing, and it's a little bit reversed in Memphis now. I mean, the edge has really slowed down a lot, and there's actually been a little bit of population decline. What do you mean by uh, the edge? The, you mean the part right next uh, the, to the city? No, no, I'm sorry, and I shouldn't use the edge because there actually is a neighborhood in Memphis called the edge. <laughs> no, I'm talking about the periphery of the community, the, the suburbs uh, in a sense. Uh, Germantown and some of those areas uh, are growing or have grown over the last two decades. Uh, but it's important to know and understand that that growth is in that illusion of wealth phase, that phase where, uh, you know, when the developer comes in and builds it, uh, when all the infrastructure is brand new, uh, when, you know, the transaction costs for the local government are very low, you feel very, very wealthy with that kind of growth. But the liabilities are sitting out there in the ground and they're enormous and they're going to come due in a generation. So, You know, there is kind of a natural end to that style of growth. And so it really, you know, I want to make sure if we're comparing apples to apples, we're talking about where do we make the most productive investments. I think if you look at Memphis's neighborhoods and you look at like the edge neighborhood, which we spent some time in last week, uh, really, there's a chance to do some really high return investments, things like painting crosswalks, uh, putting in. Uh, striping on the streets to narrow the lanes and slow the lanes down, changing some of the codes so that you can reuse the buildings that are there without having to go through 23 different inspections and, uh, you know, have it as if it were a brand new suburban place out on the edge. Uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of things you can do at the very, very small, small scale. Most of them, though, are not going to be government kind of things. It's Most of them are going to be government kind of getting out of the way. Uh, changing the regulatory approach, uh, maybe, you know, the, the financing part needs to be fixed. We met with a guy last week who's trying to put just an accessory apartment onto his place, basically take his garage and be able to have an apartment in it and rent it out. Uh, he got through all the city hoops, which were not minor, but now he can't get financing because that's the kind of thing you can't get uh, FHA backing for. And so none of the local banks are necessarily willing to make him a loan on it. He can't get an, a, 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 an appraiser to go out there because there's no comparables and because there's no secondary market for it. So these are things that I think the answer to are going to come more in the philanthropic community, uh, in the private sector, and you know, in, in the very neighborhood level more than they're going to come from the government per se. 
Uh, you mentioned striping the roads. Um, it, it's hard to imagine the mayor running on his re- on his reelection campaign that that would be a, <laughs> a centerpiece, and that's one of the challenges I think of the approach that you're advocating, the incremental approach. It's not dramatic. It's not as easy to market or sell to the to the citizens. But let's step back from Memphis and and talk about why why something like striping and narrowing the roads. Why do you think that's a good idea? Because I've I've read I've read you uh, I've seen you write about that. What's the idea there? Well, what you're really trying to do is we're trying to get back to a place where people will invest in the neighborhoods again. And when, just from a physical standpoint, and understand, I'm a civil engineer, I'm a land use planner, so this is kind of my bailiwick a little bit, like why do people inhabit places, why do they invest in them? And, you know, what we have found is that the highest returning land uses, so the highest returning types of building form, are the kinds that were built prior to World War II. It's where you got the line of shops uh, with a second-story, uh, you know, apartment or living unit, uh, the kind of stuff that you see on main streets all over this country. There's a reason our ancestors built that way. It's really, really financially productive. Some of the obstacles to doing that today, one of them includes the fact that we've just over-engineered and overbuilt our streets. Uh, a lot of that comes from national standards that have been established. A lot of it comes from the way that the funding comes down through the feds and the state uh, and the mandates that come with that in terms of what the design capacities have to be. But one of the simplest solutions to getting these neighborhoods back is just to go out and narrow up the street lanes. When you narrow up the street lanes, cars drive slower. People feel more comfortable there. They walk across the street to the store across the street. And in a real subtle and cheap way, you get a lot more pedestrian traffic, a lot more retail, uh, a lot more people. And people spend money, and, and that's what makes a place wealthier. When people are there, people will invest more. And we've seen again and again, and actually Memphis has one of the best case studies in the country on Broad Avenue. A group went out there, uh, actually painted in some narrower driving lanes, painted in some bike lanes, uh, and uh, put in some crosswalks. And really, that was about it. I mean, there was a, they, they hosted like a block party over the weekend and just kind of showed off what this neighborhood could look like if people wanted to move there and live there. Uh, subsequent to that, and it's been about two years now, they've had over $20 million of new investment in that neighborhood. Uh, they've basically restored every dilapidated, blighted building on that block. And by they, I mean the private sector, you know, not the government at all. Individuals have come in and made better use of these properties. And it really was just the catalyst of narrowing the lanes, doing a little bit of superficial work, and uh, holding a block party that got it all kicked off. Well, there might have been some other stuff going on there at the same time, but I I like the idea that if you create the right environment for people to explore and expand and use the environment in creative and productive ways, you'll get more of it and rather than less. You've said some interesting things about streets versus roads. Um, you've written about that. Talk about why these really wide roads, these boulevards. Uh, I'm in Montgomery County. Rockville Pike is a typical example of this. Uh, they're all over Memphis um, where you've got two lanes on each side, uh, which seems great. There's plenty of room. There's never any traffic if you're in a, a city like Memphis. Uh, what's wrong with those? Why? The, why are you? What's the problem with them? Well, there's a thing we call a strode, which is a street road hybrid. And we, we actually call it the futon of transportation. If you think of a futon 
as being an uncomfortable couch that makes into an uncomfortable bed. It's a, it's a thing that doesn't work well either way. And when you look at a Strode environment, what you see is an investment that's trying to, to do the road function and the street function at the same time. The road function is to move vehicles quickly from one place to another. And if you think of a road as a replacement of a railroad, you know, a railroad is a road on rails. In a railroad, you get on at one place, you get off at another. And, you know, there's no frontage railroads or drive-through railroads. You just have a high-speed connection from one place to another. When we build uh, infrastructure uh, to kind of capture that type of motion, you know, the ability to get from one productive place to another productive place, the roads work really, really well. Wider lanes, you know, more sweeping corners, uh, get the traffic out of there. But what happens is we try to also make it function like a street. Street is a platform for creating wealth, for capturing wealth. And with a street... Uh, you really need uh, a mixing of, you know, different things. You, you can't have all automobiles. You have to have people walking, people biking, uh, people able to get across in wheelchairs and what have you. You, you need humanity to make a street productive. When you have uh, the cars moving through too quickly, uh, it really detracts from the overall street function. What we've done in the engineering profession is just compromise between the two. And so you get these over-engineered strodes where you've got highway capacities, highway-style lanes, and then accesses every 50 feet or 100 feet. So you've got turning traffic uh, in and out. And what you wind up with is a land-use pattern that financially costs a ton and yields very little back in terms of overall tax base. And that's why you think uh, narrower, less Lower capacity streets would be better? When you're trying to build a street, you know, you really have to look at the place that you're, you're designing and say, is the function of this place to create wealth or is the function of this particular, you know, roadway to move cars quickly? Just a if it's to move cars there. quickly, yeah. yeah. If you're trying to move cars quickly, then don't dumb down in a sense or, or screw up the roadway investment by trying to get cheap development along it, you know, try to essentially mine that public investment in the roadway for like quick, easy returns. If you're building a street, then you have to actually slow down the cars and design it to function as a street so that you have an opportunity for really good wealth creation. That's just a design trick. I mean, essentially design 101 uh, at the local level. So how much of this is is um, going back to my earlier question about mistakes versus special interests. Obviously, people who build roads like to build roads. Um, it's kind of their specialty. Uh, so they, and that's what they make <laughs> right. their money from. Uh, engineers like to build roads. Uh, it's what they were trained to do. Uh, so it's it's kind of a natural thing. So at the same time, uh, the citizens – a lot of us like city living, the idea of city living. But we also like our yards. We want a place for our kids to play. We might not want a city park as our only option. We want to have a, a backyard and, and we like privacy and we're wealthy now. So the suburbs have a certain draw uh, because of that, because of people like you know yards. And yet at the same time, there are people who like – I'll take my wife as the quintessential example. My wife's ideal place to live, which she doesn't live in now, uh, is where you can walk out the door. She doesn't like to get in her car. 
She walks out the door. She can get her coffee. She can go stop and get some groceries. Um, we were just in the city of Jerusalem, which has an unbelievable street life and um, the kind of mixed uh, dwelling and, and, and stores at the, on the lower level that you're talking about. The sidewalks are ample. And so it's, it's a very vibrant, incredibly vibrant city. And yet a lot of people don't want to live there. They want to have their yard and they want to diff- – they're just different from my wife. Uh, I like both. I, I'm not particular about either one. But a lot of people like getting in their cars. They don't mind the, that landscape that you find sterile and, and unattractive. So is this just – maybe this is just the fact that people are different. Some people like one and some like the other. Yeah, I, I totally respect that. And I think you know, I'll even add to that. Uh, I grew up on a small farm in central Minnesota. Uh, we were way out in the middle of nowhere, 80 acres, uh, you know, horses, cows, pigs, chickens, uh, loved it. I absolutely thought it was great. Uh, right now, out in front of the farm, which is the same size and the same place, uh, there's a 40-foot wide paved road where when I was a kid, it used to be two tire paths through the woods. We're really not talking about lifestyle choice here. I think we can make room for what everybody's preferences are. What we're talking about is the proportion of public investment to private investment. Uh, you know, if you look at the farm where my parents still live today, uh, they have a- about half a million dollars of public infrastructure out in front of their place. The whole farm is only worth a couple million dollars. So, you know, the, the, the public investment that was made because of the school district moving, you know, way out to the edge of town and, and demanding sewer water and a wide road is completely disproportionate to the private investment that is there on on the farm. Uh, When you look at a lot of suburban parcels, a lot of suburban developments, you see that same disproportion. Uh, We did a, a, I looked at some numbers out of Omaha a couple years ago. And in 1940, the average Omaha citizen had six feet of sidewalk and six feet of roadway uh, per citizen. So essentially, you know, if you think of your taxes going to maintain this, everybody was responsible for about six feet. Today, it's about 70 feet. And, you know, so you've got more than 10 times the amount of obligation and liability. A, a lot of this stuff out on the edge, a lot of the suburban stuff where people do have expressed a preference of one degree or another to a, a large lot and, uh, you know, the yard and what have you, is a preference being made with a huge subsidy attached to it. Uh, it's not a real true market preference. When people would be given a market preference, which they really are, are not in this country, I, I think that people would respond differently if they actually had to pay the cost of the roadway, uh, if the full cost of the infrastructure uh, was felt today instead of, you know, in, in the future at some point. Uh, I, I think and of course, that, you know, of course we're not, we'd be sending different market signals. And of course the, we're not even paying for it eventually. We're pay- someone else is paying for it across the country, on the other side of the country through a federal block grant or some right. other. It's just well, it's a very distorted system. There's no doubt about it. Well, that's what happens today. I mean, I, I think part of our premise or part of our understanding of strong towns is that the clock is ticking on that. And, you know, we're going to wind up with a lot of places where uh, there's going to be no money to fix this stuff. I mean, we, we see cities across this country right now in what we call a soft default. You've got Detroit, Stockton, San Bernardino that have done the hard default, but cities everywhere are putting off maintenance, uh, are letting things go, uh, are not doing things that are are just really logical in terms of keeping roadways 
fixed so they don't completely fall apart. Uh, you know, they're, they're laying out firefighters and policemen. Um, this is all kind of the, the soft default that we see all over the place. And it's a function of the fact that there's a, a real disproportion. The places are not financially productive. There's a huge gap between what the private sector tax base will support and what the public obligations that are in the ground uh, are actually today. So there's a couple issues here. Let's. I want to hone in on this to try to get a little more um, better understanding of what what you see as is the problem. I'm actually less interested in the financial problem, more interested in what I earlier called texture, so our quality of life. You know, again, I live in Montgomery County, which is incredibly car based and not particularly attractive uh, part of the country. What's What's fascinating to me, by the way, is that Germantown, Tennessee, the suburb of Memphis, is a much more aesthetically pleasing. Uh, part of the country, a place to, to drive through and stop and get out of your car and go to the, the mall than, uh, than, than Montgomery County. Montgomery County is much wealthier than, um, than Memphis, and I think there's some zoning and other reasons that, that have made it harder for innovation to take place here in Montgomery County relative to Memphis. It's harder, I think, for private investment to take place here, I'm guessing, than in Memphis because in Memphis it looks a lot nicer. It's just more aesthetically pleasing. Um, So my question is, what could we do – we is the wrong word. What could someone do or what could change in a place like Montgomery County or Germantown that would make them more uh, pleasant places to live? Let's not – I have no doubt we waste enormous sums of money on mega projects and road expansions that don't pay for themselves, that aren't worth it in any economic sense. But would people live far apart from each other? There's a limit it seems to me to what we can do to make them more aesthetically pleasing? Or are you just saying uh, that phenomenon is artificial and we would live closer together in a world where we didn't have uh, the distortions we're talking about? Well, I think that your second point is true. I think we would live differently. Uh, I'm not saying there wouldn't be suburbs. There certainly would be. Uh, They just wouldn't be, you know, to the hyper extent. I mean, Memphis has built two beltways. (laughs) You would never have that. Uh, I mean, you shouldn't have that today in a sane world, uh, but you wouldn't have that in a place where we actually paid for this stuff. But let me get to, you know, how do you make this stuff aesthetically pleasing? This isn't my area of expertise, but I've, I've been around it long enough where I'll try to answer your question intelligently. I think it's important to kind of split things into two different boxes in terms of aesthetics. One is the aesthetics at 45 miles an hour. Uh, the other is aesthetics when you're out of your car. They're two dramatically different, uh, uh, tra- dramatically different standards. And you can take a place like Germantown, uh, in Memphis. You can take, you know, your standard kind of Walmart today, uh, which, you know, a lot of the times when they build those, they, they look okay. It's neat out front. They'll plant trees in the medians. Uh, they'll put, you know, decent siding on it. They've got the colors down. They know how to make these places look good when they build them. You know, the parking lot will be all nice and fresh looking and not cracked. What happens is, though, over time is that there just isn't uh, – the, the the economic sense isn't there. Uh, the, the incentives aren't there to maintain those places and keep them up. I was in a thing a couple years ago where uh, the uh, one of the executive from Walmart was there making a presentation to a bunch of assessors. It was the – International Association of Assessing Officers. I was speaking at their conference and I sat in on this session 
And the, the Walmart guy essentially got up and made the case that, look, we're building buildings that are designed to last for 12 to 15 years. And after that period of time, we, our business model is to step back and look and see, should we move to another location uh, or should we put money into fixing up and maintaining this building? And his argument to these assessing officers was, look, you're, you're taxing us way too much because the buildings we're building are really cheap and you're building them, you know, you're assessing them as if they're very expensive. For me, as the planner, you know, I'm listening to this and it's confirming what I see over and over, which is in this pattern, we tend to build things uh, that are not throwaway. So they're not easy to like tear down and, and rebuild something valuable, uh, but they're not quality enough to where they're actually going to endure more than a, a generation. And you see people build these things. And then what happens after a generation? They abandon them and they move up the highway to the next place. And you get kind of a rolling blight. That is the story of building post-World War II America. And, you know, I think a lot of the aesthetics that you see and the problems you have with aesthetic is actually more one of the underlying financial incentives, uh, you know, with, with those buildings as opposed to, um, you know, something that we could actually do from a design standpoint. Does that well, make sense? Yeah, but a lot of people will, t- will claim that, that Walmart gets all these subsidies. That's why they build these buildings way out in the edge of town and, and they abandon them 12 years later because there's a better location, say. But And a lot of them they rehab, I'm sure. But it seems to me that, that there's problems on both the tax and the subsidy side. I don't know if that's true about, quote, Walmart getting subsidies. They certainly get the subsidy of the implicit of the road. It gets people out to the to the big box on, on the edge of town, and um, to some extent, I have, you have to be careful because to some extent drivers are paying for that in the form of gas taxes uh, and right. other things. I think the real issue is the one you're, that we talked about earlier, which is uh, I'm paying my gas tax here in Montgomery County so that somebody in in Brainerd, Minnesota, can have a better road, it, it's or in somewhere different part of, of Maryland, and the the connection between what I pay for and what I get is broken, and that feedback loop being broken means, um, boy, anything goes. We're going to have a lot of bad investments that aren't going to pay for themselves. Well, the crazy thing, too, I mean, I live in a city of 13,500 people. If you were to go around and you know pull people over during their morning commute and ask them about the congestion levels, they would say they're horrendous, right? They would say, well, we have horrible congestion. Um, I lived down in Minneapolis-St. Paul when I was going to graduate school where they actually like do have congestion. <laughs> and when you come up here, you know, it's almost laughable, but it's relative, right? Right. Uh, if you lived here 10 years ago, there's more cars today in a sense, uh, you know, on the key roads than there are, uh, you know, than there were 10 years ago. And so w- what are all of our local politicians clamoring for? We need more money to fight congestion. And yeah, so, y- you know, you do make a valid point that, there's no uh there's no feedback loop there's no uh there's no system that that correlates supply and demand through price uh we have infinite demand because we all want congestion free roads and we all believe we're paying a lot because we are yeah well what about this argument that we we just we need more infrastructure. That we need more spending. That's uh, that you mentioned earlier. The roads are falling apart. Don't we need to take care of these things? Aren't they important? Yeah, it, it's really kind of maddening to me too when you see organizations like the American Society of Civil Engineers, 
here in Minnesota, we have this new coalition called Move MN, which is a bunch of uh, engineering firms and uh, paving contractors and the like unions. Uh, is a really broad coalition of people who are saying, you know, we need more money for infrastructure. And they're right, in a sense, if we are going to continue building this system in the way that we're building it, uh, without any type of financial feedback loop, without any change in, you know, the, the, the design standards of, of anything we're doing, uh, we need a lot more money. I mean, we need tons and tons of money. In Minnesota, we put out a report, our DOT did, saying that we're going to have, I want to say the number was like 15 or 18 billion in revenue over the next two decades, and we need an additional 50 billion. Well, that's not a small policy tweak, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's an apocalyptic difference, you know? Uh, that's a, this is a massive, massive swing. I guess it, so, I guess it depends it, on what you mean by the word need though, right? So that they're yeah. going to, there's some, there's some marketing going on there. There's no question that there's a lot of propaganda involved in those numbers. But I think the base assumption is that everything we built is good. Everything we built, we need to keep. And, you know, the future will include building a lot more. (laughs) And from where I stand, you know, we're making really, really, really low use of everything that we built. And, you know, I would focus on that way, 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 you know, more intensely than anything else. I, I actually think we need to contract our infrastructure by, you know, a large percentage in order to get back to something that would be financially productive. What would that world look like when you say contract? Um, you're talking about presumably not repaving roads, letting them go back to nature or digging them up or whatever you would do in the meanwhile. You mean not building a new airport? Do you mean closing an airport? Do you mean – what kind of issues – do you mean closing the light rail, which is a, a fad yeah. that swept through a lot of American cities, I think, with not much return and great cost? Um, when you say cut back, what do you have in mind? I think all those things are, are viable things on the table, and I think that all those things are likely to happen to a one degree or another – you know, as I think the federal government is forced more and more just due to overcommitment to essentially back off from their promises to cities. Uh, I think all those things will happen. There's a city outside of Chicago, and I can't remember the name, but just a couple months ago went through and said, look, we, we don't have anywhere near the money we need to maintain all these roads. So we're going to make every dead end cul-de-sac private. Uh, congratulations. You know, you have a new road. Um, and so they've said, you know, we can maintain essentially the trunk system, the arterial system, but we can't maintain all of these little dead end cul-de-sacs that are 1200 feet with eight homes on them. You know, if you guys want those maintained, you have to do it yourself. I think that's a viable option. Uh, in North Dakota, they've actually taken a lot of roads that were paved and just turned them back to gravel. Uh, I think that's a viable option. Uh, when you talk about light rail, uh, the sad thing is a lot of our light rail systems have really good uh, connections at some points, but then for political reasons, they added a whole bunch of stops that just uh, don't work. They're not financially productive. There's not anything going on there. They're stopping. Nobody gets on and off. I, I think it's logical that some of those would be closed as well. Uh, I also think there's just a lot of sewer and water in the ground. You know, we obsess about roadways. Uh, roadways are a small fraction of the cost, actually, of what sewer and water cost. 
and there's a, a lot of sewer and water pipe in the ground, a lot of pump stations, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, just that kind of like deep infrastructure where when it goes bad, you, I think people are just going to look around and say, look, uh, it's going to be 50,000, 60,000 a house to fix this. You can go put your own well in for five. Uh, I, I don't, I think there's going to be just the practicality of not being able to do a lot of it. And we're just going to walk away from it. So this is a very, um, I hate to use the word apocalyptic ver- vision of, um, say the next 10, 20 years. The part that's strange for me, and I, I, I'm not suggesting it isn't possibly going to happen. It, it very well, very well may happen because it, it's consistent with this bizarre, seemingly bizarre thing that's happening where people say, well, we're out of money, so we can't do this anymore. We can't do that anymore. We're going to have to make hard choices. And then I look at the data, and government's huge. What, what, what do you mean we're out of money? And I, I guess part of what we're talking about here, to the extent that this vision is 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 not uh, just a dark fantasy but but maybe a real prediction, is that we've made these promises to workers in the form of pension funds, to maintaining infrastructure that that aren't viable. Is is that the right story? Yeah, that's exactly the right story. And the thing is, a lot of those promises were made under the guise that this growth pattern would create just endless prosperity. I mean, in the 80s, I've looked at like the Detroit stuff. And in the early 80s, you know, we were negotiating. We, I wasn't there, but whoever was there was negotiating with these unions. And they'd say, well, instead of taking a 5% increase in pay, we'll take a 3%, but then you know, goose our pensions. And they'd look around and say, well, everything's growing and, you know, we're going to get 9% plus from uh, our pension fund return. And so, yeah, let's do it. And, you know, looking out in the future, they somehow could justify that. The the growth from this system hasn't been there. And a lot of it is because there's, there's so much drag at the local level from what we did a generation ago. You know, if I could, I, I think that People have a hard time getting their eyes, their their mind around this. And you use the word apocalyptic, and I respect that. I think in some ways there's a tinge of that. Yet, if you went to people in 1940, let's say, and you know went into a neighborhood where people live largely in cities, and said, you know, in 10 years uh, this neighborhood's going to be in serious decline, and you're going to pick up and you're going to move out to that cornfield out on the edge of town because that will make a lot of sense. They would have told you that sounded apocalyptic, right? They would have said, well, my, my job is in this neighborhood. My family's lived here for generations. My kids go to school here. My church is here. All my community bonds are here. Yet in a decade, they all picked up and moved because it made logical sense. I think you're starting to see a, a trickle uh, now of people you know, moving the other way where exurbs and suburbs are actually starting to lose population while center cities are starting to, to gain. And I think a very logical outcome to places that are financially not viable is for them to just, you know, by apathy, in a sense, just go away. That happens many, many times around this country. And I don't think it would be apocalyptic for us. I think it would just be, you know, a shift in our development pattern. Well, you know, I don't spend a lot of time in urban Detroit. I have been there in the last, I think, 10 years or so. I went to a high school there to give a talk, and uh, it was pretty apocalyptic. 
uh, <laughs> urban Detroit. I went to a baseball game. You know, they had yeah. recently built a beautiful new stadium, Comerica Park, which is a great, great stadium. And it, it, there, it, I felt a little bit like I was in the movie Mad Max. I don't know if anyone out there still remembers that movie, but it's a, literally an apop- apocalyptic movie about the breakdown of civilization. And, and walking through, driving through, of course, mainly the city streets of Detroit, I think at the time there was either no or one movie theater in the entire uh, metropolitan area, the, not the metropolitan area, the city core. Um, it was pretty dysfunctional. It, it was pretty depressing. And we've been talking about infrastructure and road use, and we haven't got to zoning, but that would be another area where I'm sure there's problems. But, of course, it's a much broader range of problems for Detroit than just those mistakes. Um, horrible school system, public public school system. They have a, they have a lot of crime. They don't have a lot of jobs uh, and, and economic development. Uh, so we're really talking about a much wider range of stuff. We focused on a, narrow, a relatively narrow range. Um, there's a lot more going on, though, right? There's a lot of mistakes that are being made, not just the ones we're talking about. Yeah, and, and I, you know, <laughs> this is going to sound, you know, I, I've been to Detroit too, and Detroit is as you describe it in, in many places. Um, I think there's two things that are really interesting with Detroit, and, and this is one I tell people all the time. You know, Detroit is looked at as this anomaly. And in my view, Detroit is, is not some anomaly. They're more the canary in the coal mine. They're more the, uh, the, the logical destination for a, a civilization or a city that does ridiculous financial things. Um, you know, you've got uh, all the different, you know, five mile, six mile, seven mile, eight mile, where you, you just got the, the essence of the city kind of ripped out and spread out over this broad area. And there just isn't enough there to maintain everything. Detroit is in a state, and this is the other part of Detroit that I find fascinating, of essentially contracting back to something that would be, in a sense, manageable or defensible, maybe, to use a, a military analogy. If you go right now today to the core of Detroit, it's actually one of the most exciting places in the world, uh, and largely because of the absence of government. There's nobody there telling people you can't open this business or you have to get a permit to do that or inspections to do this. Uh, there's, you know, very few barriers for young people to start a business and get things going. That there aren't the large corporations that are competing uh, and kind of raising up the initial cost of entry. So downtown, like the very core of Detroit, has some really fascinating things going on right now in terms of business startup and, and economics. But, um, yeah, the rest of the Detroit is really kind of a scary place in many ways. And, and you know, I, I think our challenge, really, if, if I had to define our challenge for this generation, it's to make the transition to what the core of Detroit is today, this kind of vibrant place where a lot of great stuff is happening without going through what the rest of Detroit has gone through. Uh, To me, that's like the cities that can do that are going to be the ones that are going to be really successful places. Well, I have a quote from you here. Um, It's uh, you you wrote the following. Here's what's relevant. If Memphis – I'm talking about Memphis at the time, but it's the same point. Here's what is relevant. If Memphis wants to innovate and if Memphis wants to make really high returning public investments, it isn't going to happen from the top down. Successful innovation starts at the bottom and works its way up. How does – why is that – I mean most people like government in cities. In fact, you know, we've had an episode of 
under trying to understand of econ talk, we're trying to understand why urban dwellers like big government. There's a lot of complicated and, and some straightforward reasons, but in general, I don't see Americans America's cities uh, that the model of, of bottom up innovation. It's a harder sell, and I'm not sure how do we get there from here. I think it's important to draw a distinction between the size and the scale of the government and the innovation part of it. Um, you know, innovation for government looks like a stadium, right? <laughs> it looks like, you know, we're going to run uh, public utilities out to here and generate some new growth. Uh, th- those kind of things have to be happening in the private sector. The, the actual innovation side of it is not something that government does well. W- what can government do well? Well, you know, maintain the pipe, maintain the road. Uh, fix the lift pumps, um, you know, keep the city running, provide the police protection and the fire protection. I, I think those are essentially like services that the government can do really, really competently. They, they can also do them incompetently. But, you know, those are management issues, not like investment issues. When it comes to innovation, where, uh, you know, should we be investing our money? Where's the growth going? To me, government's role is to follow the private sector and simultaneously to be long-term stewards of the public purse. Uh, so, you know, when you follow the private sector, you're only doing it when it makes financial sense for the community as a whole. Uh, I think that getting the innovation out of government, where government is trying to be the kingmaker, the dealmaker, uh, you know, the ones who come up with the big splashy project that's going to make a difference, that that would be huge in turning our cities around. Isn't part of the problem, though, that the political structure of America's cities is not is not very competitive? We have a lot of cities uh, that are one-party rule effectively. Again, Montgomery County, where I live, it's uh, one party runs it, has run it, will run it for a long, long time. It Now, Part of that is because they're doing a good job, I think, in some citizens' minds. But part of it is there's a lot of room for error there before they're going to get thrown out. Um, what, what do you think of that part of the problem, the political governance issue? You know, I, I've seen that in many places. Uh, you know, here uh, when you get up to our Iron Range uh, in Minnesota, we, we have a really strong union presence. And it tends to kind of calcify things. Um but in those places, you know, you're really talking about uh, just the overall level of competence in doing basic systems. You know, do you, how do you go about crack sealing roads? How do you go about, you know, maintaining your lift pumps? I, I think that those things are not what's going to kill us. And if we have one party rule where they favor a certain approach to that and another party where they're going to say, we're going to privatize some of that. I, I, I really feel like that's an apples to apples discussion at the end of the day. But both parties, we, but both parties like those, like the stadium, um, whether it's yes. a, a democratic yeah. government in the inner city or a Republican government in the suburbs, which is the way it, it works in many cities. They both, they all like the grand stuff. Um, I guess the only thing that's going to stop that is that budget constraint, that, that bankruptcy issue. That, that's exactly what it is. And, and I, I would also add to that, I think the, you know, the state and federal largesse as well. I mean, when you, yeah, I look at the two big projects that my little town has done in recent years. Uh, the one was 90% funded with federal stimulus money. The other one's going to be 90% funded with state bonding money. As soon as the state and federal government runs out of those sources of funds, which, you know, I, I don't know. That, that's a macro issue. I'm not there. 
But, you know, I, I, I know that those governments are vastly overcommitted too. As soon as those things dry up and the city has to do things on their own, the idea of these mega projects goes out the window because it's, it's not going to happen. I mean, even, even a city like Minneapolis where they're building a new stadium for the Vikings, that thing was paid for largely by the state. Uh, there was a local contribution, but it's not, you know, the most significant part of it. So yeah, I, I think the whole thing changes essentially when the federal and state government don't have the money to do this anymore. So we have to root for the apocalypse. And by the way, I assume – it's a joke. It's a joke. But I assume when you yeah. said the local, some local money went to pay for the state, you meant the city of Minneapolis, not the actual team, the Minnesota Vikings. Um, yeah, the, the team – it's funny because the team is kicking in like a paltry sum uh, that they're largely getting from you know, the, the stadium naming rights and uh, the seat licenses and stuff. But yeah, that's coming from the city. Yeah. You want to say anything about those two projects in your town of Brainerd, uh, Minnesota, that that were funded by the stimulus and the bond issue? That uh, how how are they turning out? Um, the one are is you, are in you the glad, ground. Are you glad to have them? No, no. In fact, it's they're maddening to me, and it's maddening to me because I actually care. You know, uh, the the one is a shortcut from the poorest district of the city to the Walmart in the neighboring city. And the people get, you know, the people in the government here get mad when I describe it like that. Uh, but that's precisely what it is. There was a shortcut, uh, around the city and during peak times. So for 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes in the evening, there was some congestion because that's where the buses would go through. And the city got $9.2 million to take that two lane shortcut and make it into a four lane shortcut. And they largely was paid for by stimulus money. It actually won engineering project of the year. Uh, I had gone in as part of putting this together and given them an alternative design that would have been around a million dollars. Uh, and my design was designed to actually create a platform where you would get private investment along this roadway. You've got the college on one side. You've got these really low-value apartments on the other. And the idea was, couldn't we get some of these college professors to want to live in this neighborhood, uh, make it easier for students to walk back and forth, kind of leverage that investment from the college? That all went away, and now we just move cars back and forth, and there's been, it's been three years out, not a dime of private investment anywhere in this area. Uh, the other one is well, but, a sewer but Chuck, extension. Go Chuck, ahead. We know it created dozens of jobs because we know government <laughs> spending has a multiplier effect, and doesn't right. matter what they spend the money on. They just should have actually, you know, my argument is, my tongue-in-cheek argument, they should have made an $18 million project instead of nine. You wanted yeah. one, so you were very unpopular. They they had right. a $9 million project. If they just doubled what they paid for everything, they could have had an $18 million yeah. project to create even more jobs. Well, here's the really insidious part of it. A lot of, a couple of council members really liked my plan, but the million dollars would have been all local money. Uh, with the way the project went down, the 9.2 million, only like 600,000 was actually paid locally. So it was actually a, a cheaper project for the local government to do the large dumb project right. than it was to do something that actually benefited them. Well, and and that, that's but, where. But that's, Chuck, that's probably the only project in the country of the 700, <laughs> the 800 something billion dollars of stimulus that was spent. I'm yeah. sure yours was the only one that had that weird perverse incentive and built something that was actually maybe a uh, negative. The thing, I worked for years as an engineer and 
you know, one of the reasons why I left and went back to graduate school was because I just saw all these dumb projects that I was working on and felt, you know, th- th- there's got to be something that we could do ahead of all this from a planning standpoint that would keep us from having to do these just stupid projects. And what I found after getting a planning degree was that no, no, it's not the planning. It's not the lack of planning. In fact, the planning kind of is designed to bring this about. It's actually, you know, the, the underlying economic system that creates this. So yeah, it's, it's a mess. It's really, really bad incentives. So I, I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. And, and for those out there listening, um, you know, sometimes I think of, of what we do here at Econ Talk is, you know, we help each other understand how things actually work. We not, might not be happy with the fact that they work that way, but we're, we're wiser, even if we're not any better off. We at least we understand it. Um, do you have anything more optimistic than that to tell me? Is there is anybody listening to to smarttowns.org and Chuck Marone and saying, hey, may, maybe we could do this differently? And are there any cities? Yeah. Besides the one, maybe there's some that are doing it well who aren't listening. They just happen to getting it. They're getting it right. So, do you have any um, slightly more upbeat stories to end on? Yeah, yeah. And just to be clear, too, you said smart towns, and a lot of people do that because this field is kind of inundated with oh, the yeah, notion sorry. of smart growth. It's strong towns. Yeah, sorry, strong towns. Yeah, and we're really. I mean, I'm. I don't dislike the smart growth people, but you know, we're motivated by very different things, and so things kind of work out differently at the end sometimes. But yeah, do I have any optimistic stories? I can tell you that I, about, well, in 2008, I started writing this blog just as kind of a a way to focus my thoughts. I actually wanted to write a book. And so I started writing just, you know, to kind of discipline myself to write more. And after a year, a friend of mine said, you should start this non, you should start a nonprofit around these ideas. And I told him I hated nonprofits and thought they were worthless and I didn't want to be associated with one. And he said, well, I'll start it and you just keep writing. <laughs> so a, a year later, I, I'm, I have this nonprofit organization and we got our 501c3 status and met with the board the first time. And my board said, what do you want to do? And I said, I have no idea, but this is the message I think is important. And they basically sent me out and said, go give this message to whoever will hear it. Uh, when I first started out, I was getting two, three people show up. At, uh, at a meeting, you know, I would drive a couple hours, we'd advertise, we'd tell people we we're going to be there and two people would show up. Um, you know, four, five years later, I can't go anywhere without a hundred people showing up. And, you know, there are communities across this country. I'm, I'm going to be in Ontario next week. The week after I'm going to be in San Antonio and then Austin. Uh, my calendar is booked through the end of the year with places that want to talk about this. Public officials, when I give this talk, I can see them nodding. It's like the nod of recognition, like, yeah, okay, now you're explaining what I'm feeling. You know, we're doing everything right. We're doing everything the professionals are telling us to do, everything the playbook is telling us to do, and it's not working. Thank you for giving us an alternative narrative. I think the harder question becomes, what do we do now? And, you know, Memphis, I think, is a good example where this has caught on, I've been working with Memphis for about three years. And, you know, the mayor made the announcement last week, there'll be no more annexation, no more horizontal growth. We are, we are done with that. And annexation being where you expand the reach of the metropolitan area? 
What, what is yeah, annexation? You, okay, annexation is where you bring more land into the city. So land that is in the county is unincorporated now becomes city of Memphis. And actually, it's kind of insidious in Memphis because for years, uh, when they get to the end of the year and like the budget didn't work, they would go annex a bunch of land, bring a bunch of new land in because you would get the tax revenue from that on this year's budget, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't have to actually provide services till next year. Yeah. So it created this like, uh, you know, funding steroid boost at the end of the year. And they did that for a couple decades. So Memphis geographically is huge. So we're, we're done with that. And we're actually going to be doing things on a return on investment type basis. I think Memphis stands to be, you know, one of the success stories of the next couple of decades if they really put what we've been doing there into practice, which it feels like they want to, you know. How do your fellow – let's close with this. You're, you confessed earlier that you were an engineer that was – the way I would have described it, you didn't use this word, but you were a little bit ashamed of what you found yourself spending your day doing not clear you were actually making the world a better place. Uh, what kind of response has your um, have your efforts gotten from engineers and people with planning degrees, as I, I think I heard you say you have? Um, aren't you kind of taking the fun out of it for them? Uh, it, yes and no. Um, I put this video together about three years ago called Conversation with an Engineer. And I did it after a week of just dealing with what I thought were just brain dead professionals on projects. Um, it was, it basically put three different conversations I'd had into one long conversation with these two digital bears talking back and forth. It was more like therapy for me and a joke for a couple of my friends. And it's now been watched by about 240, it's now been watched like 240,000 times, something like that. Uh, it's been wildly popular and I've had the chance to watch it. Uh, with groups of engineers, but essentially like stand in the back and watch these engineers watch this video. And I'm going to make a broad generalization, but I think it's fairly accurate. The, the older you tend to be, the more grouchy the look on their face is. And the younger you tended to be, the more they would laugh and chuckle and, you know, high five each other and, uh, and do that. I think what you're seeing is, and my experience has been, it's really hard to look back at the body of work that you've done and see that it wasn't helpful. Uh, That was a big hangup for me, too. I mean, I thought I was building a strong America when I was doing engineering work. It, It took me a long time to come to grips with kind of that what I was doing wasn't the right thing. I think the younger people are seeing this with fresher eyes. And, you know, the cognitive dissonance is greater because it it hasn't been something you've kind of, you know, floated into. It's something you're just dropped into. So, you know, you see it more clearly. And I think there's a hunger amongst younger people to to do things differently. My inbox is full of young engineers, young planners, people getting started who say, you know, thank you. You're giving me a language to be able to speak to the management here in a different way. and. Uh, you know, I, I, I do have some optimism that the profession is ultimately going to embrace some of these ideas because financially they're going to have to. Nothing concentrates a man's mind more than knowing he'll be hung in a fortnight, um, which I think is part of what we're talking about here. My, right. my guest today has been Charles Marone, president of Strong Towns. 
Chuck, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Hey, it's been a, a real pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.